brought to you by Nacho. Hello, and welcome to Payment Smartcast, Nacho's podcast channel featuring discussions of interest to the payments community. I'm Dan Roth, Senior Director of Communications at Nacho. Today, we're joined by Amy Morris, Senior Director of ACH Network Rules at Nacho. Many organizations use small value ACH transactions to validate an account that a customer is using to pay with or receive payments into. These transactions are often called test transactions or micro entries. Earlier this year, NACHA passed a new rule defining micro entries as a transaction type and standardizing the formatting and sending requirements, keeping in line with common industry practices. Amy has joined us to do a deep dive into the rule, what it means, timelines and enforcement, the transactions that are impacted, and what organizations that use micro-entries need to do to comply with the rule. So welcome, Amy, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So there has been a lot of discussion about Notch's micro-entry rule. Can you give us some background for the rule and help our listeners know what a micro-entry is for this rule? Absolutely. So you did a wonderful job, um, you know, opening this up. And so as you mentioned, uh, what we have now defined as micro-entries have been around for quite some time in the payment space. And we've heard them called test transactions, test deposits, penny tests, micro-deposits. They've had a lot of names. Um, And so the purpose of this rule was uh, not to try to redefine or reshape an already existing practice or product in the industry, but really to provide that standardization. So as a result of previous rules that have been implemented for the ACH network, um, such as the account validation rule for web debits, has brought account validation functionality really uh, more into the forefront um, of those folks that are sending payments and broadening their risk mitigations. And so as a result, um, micro entries being just one type of account validation transaction, um, we've still seen an increase in their usage. And so by bringing the standardization to these types of transactions, it allows for recognition of exactly what a payment is, what its purpose is. And once you can recognize a payment, you can you better know how to treat it. You better understand how to apply um, any desired risk mitigations to that payment. And so for this rule, what we are defining as a micro-entry is a a small dollar transaction um, that is used for the purposes of verifying an account or the um, ability of a party to access the account. So that was a great explanation of the background. And as we talk about the rule, the rule was split into two phases. And the first phase of the rule went into effect on September 16th of this year. Uh, What was included in phase one and who was impacted? Absolutely. Yes. So um, originators, and so when we use the word originator in the ACH rules, we're talking about the end user who is creating the payments. And so in this case, it's the the organization who is using 
micro entries as a part of, uh, you know, some part of an account validation process, whether that's for their compliance with the web debit rule or part of, you know, a broader risk mitigation plan. So any organization that is using micro entries needed to be compliant with this rule as of September 16th. And so you're right, this rule is moving from an upcoming rule into an implemented one. And so in this first phase, um, there were a, a few pieces that went in. And the first one is actually the definition of the micro entry. So as I mentioned before, we act, we have defined that in the NACHA operating rules as a credit for less than a dollar or an offsetting debit that is, again, for the purposes of verifying an account or potential access to that account. So the definition became effective on the 16th. Um, along with that definition um, comes the requirement that if you are using micro entry debits, so there is no requirement that a, uh, a an organization that is using micro entries, um, if they're sending out the credits, the rule does not require that you send offsetting debits, but the rule does say in the first phase that if you are using offsetting debits, that the amount of those off offsetting debits, <clears throat> excuse me, must not exceed the amount of the credits. So can't leave the receiving account in a net uh, negative position when you add up your, your credits and the linked debits for that uh, micro entry process. The next piece that also went in on the 16th of September um, had to do with the formatting of the transaction. So um, beyond just defining what it is um, and setting processing parameters, it's important uh, to address the formatting because that again is what makes it recognizable. And so effective on the 16th of September, a micro entry must have the company entry description of account verify, and that's ACCT verify altogether, and of course, all in caps. So this is very similar to other types of required descriptions in the ACH network for things like reversals, uh, return fees, reinitiated transactions. You know, this we've done this. Um, in the past over time, um, when we have defined certain types of transactions, we've also, again, defined a required uh, description for them. So that, again, the recognition can allow for the application of risk management as well as the rules. And one last, uh, excuse me, there are two last pieces um, that all went in on, again, on the 16th. The uh, next to last one has to do with the submission practices. And again, this uh, pertains if you are using both credit and debit micro entries. Again, it's not required that you do, um, but if you are using both credits and debits, those credits and debits for the micro entries must be submitted at the same time. So we use the word simultaneously. And so that they will also settle at the same time. And so what that means is that they need to have the same effective entry date on them. So the goal being for them to um, be received at the receiving financial institution 
in the same file at the same time, allowing for those transactions to be posted against the account as cl close together as possible. We understand that financial institutions, when they receive these transactions, they may have different schedules in which they post their debits and credits. And so um, they may not always uh, post a, you know, together within a few seconds. Um, but the requirement again is for them to be delivered so that um, they can be posted at the same time. And then finally, the last uh, piece of the the uh, general rule that went in, in on the 16th of September is the um, around future transactions. So when am I able to submit future transactions after I have performed my micro entry process and have verified the information I'm attempting to verify? And so this is a little bit different than some of the other uh, types of verification transactions in the network, such as the pre-notification, where we do not have a prescribed waiting time here in the micro-entry rule. As the originator, the party who is using the micro-entry verification process, the originator is in the best position to understand and know when that process has been completed. So for example, if the process uh, revolves around the entry of the amounts of those micro entry transactions, then the originator is going to be the one who knows that their customer has come back into the system, even if it's through a vendor, um, they will know that that verification has taken place. They entered the amounts, the amounts were correct. Okay, everything is hunky-dory. And so, we are um, at that point, the originator knows they are able to send future transactions. That's what the rule requires. Um, and so uh, again, there is not any kind of determined or set waiting period. In fact, um, you know, depending on schedules uh, and when things are you know actually happening, um, there is a possibility that all of these transactions could take place the same day. Um, if the account, uh, excuse me, the micro entries were sent out um, in the morning um, as same day ACH transactions, the and they uh, were visible on the uh, receiver or the customer's account statement, probably their online statement, they could complete that verification process by the afternoon and future transactions could begin flowing by that evening. Um, so that's just an example, you know, of, of how that could work um, a little more quickly than some of the waiting periods that, that we've been used to. So Amy, that, that was an excellent job of explaining what was in the first phase. And you mentioned a few times micro entries being entries that are less than a dollar. Are all ACH entries that are under a dollar considered to be a micro entry? So no, they are not. Um, that is not an assumption that's made by the rules or, or by NACHA. So we've done just some anecdotal sampling of uh, some data and, you know, based on what we could tell on, you know, the various descriptions that were being used, it seems as though about 50 to 60 percent of um, the entries that are under a dollar are micro entries. Um, and obviously, you know, that leaves a great number um, left over that aren't, you know, that are for rebates or dividends, or, you know, there's a lot of other reasons why you might have a small dollar transaction. And so, no, we don't make that assumption. And that's why 
it's important um, to be, you know, compliant with this rule and using the uh, company entry description um, where it is appropriate so that we can have accurate, you know, recognition and, and not making assumptions that, you know, like I said, we know aren't, aren't true. So you've done a great job describing micro entries that are under a dollar. Uh, will operators reject micro entries that are over a dollar? Operators will not be rejecting micro entries over a dollar. They're not going to have any edits for debit or credit micro entries. So the rule requires that a credit micro entry is not over a dollar. However, the rule does permit a debit micro entry that is over a dollar as long as, again, it is not for an amount that exceeds the sum total of the credits that it is offsetting. And so there aren't going to be any edits at the operator level. Um, any kind of editing and, um, you know, failure of a transaction would be, you know, at the decision in between an ODFI, which is um, in the financial institution that's putting the transaction into the network. So that's the financial institution of the um, the end user or their third party sender if they're going through a vendor to connect to the ACH network. Um, so it would be between those three parties, you know, because the ODFI has the ultimate responsibility. They ultimately are warranting that the transactions are formatted properly. So it's at their discretion how they choose to do that. But the reject would not happen at the operator level. That transaction would flow through. And is there a limit to the number of micro entries? There is not. So again, we were not trying to be disruptive, um, you know, to existing practices. And so um, if they, you know, we've given examples in some of our, our webinars and some of our education. And I think in some of our examples, they've gone up to two credits and two offsetting debits. But that's not meant to be a limit. If your process has three credits or four credits and one offsetting debit, again, that's perfectly fine as long as, you know, the debit is not um, for an inappropriate amount. So there are no limits um, to the number of micro entries that you can use as long as, you know, they, they abide by all of the, the processing rules. And one of the things that you mentioned is the first phase of the rule went into effect on September 16th. What does enforcement look like right now for the rule? So enforcement for this rule is <clears throat> just like really um, any other notch of rules. So what that means is, um, you know, if there was to be any um, potential uh, filing for a potential rules violation, we would go to the ODFI, again, the financial institution that put the transaction into the network. There is not any additional uh, requirement in the rules for an ODFI um, to uh, take any additional steps to ensure compliance of their uh, customers. Again, so just like today, um, uh, or we could say, you know, just like two weeks ago, um, for the reversal rule, an ODFI, because they warrant all of their transactions, an ODFI is warranting um, that the description of reversal is on a reversal ACH entry. Um, and so there is not a specific call out saying, ODFI, you must ensure this. Um, 
so it is up to them, however they were doing that, you know, it, it previously, however they felt comfortable that the appropriate uh, descriptions were on their uh, transactions that they were submitting on behalf of the originators and their third party sender clients, um, you know, then that is the same thing, you know, that they should be looking at for this. There's not anything specific. Um, again, um, you know, determining the amounts, again, that is up to the discretion of the ODFI to enforce simply as they <clears throat> enforce any other NACHA operating rules that their originators are agreeing uh, to abide by. So the enforcement process for this, again, um, looks just the same as any other NACHA operating rule. There is not any kind of um, you know, automated um, enforcement in play here, like, for example, trying to match up dollar amounts and missing descriptions. There's there's none of that. Um, this is, you know, just, just like any other rule. So you've talked uh, and, and given a, a wonderful description of the first phase of the rule uh, that went into effect on September 16th. And the second phase of the rule will go into effect next March. Uh, what is included in phase two and what will those impacted by it need to do to be in compliance by next March? Yes, so there is a phase two, and it it has one requirement, um, but it's it's a little bit um, it's a, it's a little bit broader, so it it's a little bit larger. So we gave additional time, as you said, um, into uh, mid March of next year, twenty three, and the requirement is for those originators, again, those end users, even if it's you're going through a vendor, if you're using micro entries at all, um, you must have a commercially reasonable fraudulent transaction detection system um, in play. You must be using commercially reasonable fraudulent uh, detection. And so that is called out for both understanding your forward volume as well as your return volume. And so again, this is uh, looking at um, what is expected. So if you are, you take the time and you determine what your expected forward volume is. And let's say I've monitored for you know three or four months, and I know that my average um, micro entry forward volume is ten thousand payments um, per day, except for two days out of the month, where on those two days, let's call it every other Friday my volume goes up to 25,000. So what would be expected there is for there to be monitoring of the volumes of those micro entry transactions to be able to determine what would be abnormal activity. So if on a normal day, not an every other Friday, all of a sudden I, my company is originating uh, you know, 100,000 micro entries, that should be setting off, you know, alarms. That should be a red flag. There needs to be uh, procedures in place to research, determine, and address that issue. And the same thing on the returns. So one needs to understand their normal return rate 
for micro entries. It's going to be different than your overall return rate. Um, it's probably going to be a little bit higher. And so the expectation, again, is to understand what is, quote unquote, a normal return activity and to be able to recognize any abnormal rise in that rate. And again, to have the, the procedures in place to be able to uh, research, determine the issue, and address it. So Amy, you mentioned uh, two things that I think maybe our listeners may have additional questions about. So the first is you talked about return rates. Are there going to be changes to return thresholds? So no, there are not. And um, that's a great question. We have you know, definitely heard that one a lot. So we currently have three return thresholds, ACH debit return thresholds in the rules um, for unauthorized debit returns, administrative returns, and overall debit returns. Those are not changing. That monitoring is not changing. Everything that is in place today um, with the monitoring between ODFI and third-party sender or ODFI and originator, um, et cetera, all of that remains the same. We did not, we're not making any changes to those thresholds and we are not adding a new rule in there to add a new threshold specific to micro entries. So um, just again, you know, what we mean by this is to understand if your regular return rate for micro entries, let's just say it's 5%, you know, that's going to be higher than, again, your overall mix of volume if you were looking at, you know, perhaps all the recurring debits, the payments you've made time and time again, um, you know, that those are going to be successful. And so your overall rates, you know, are going to be much lower. But when you section out just those micro entries, because it is a process of making sure an account is valid by nature, those returns are going to be a little bit higher. So we're not saying that's wrong or there's a problem. Again, and it's about taking that time, which we have from now until March, to really understanding and analyzing what should be normal for your activity. If, if it's 5%, then it's 5%. And then when it starts hitting five and a half and six and et cetera, et cetera, again, those, those you know, signals need to be going off and we need to start looking at, at what the issue is. But no changes to any of those other, um, the, the actual return monitoring rules for the three debit return thresholds. And my other question is, and this is a term that people who are familiar with NACHA rules may have already heard before, but what does commercially reasonable monitoring look like and is it different than the web requirement? Yes. Um, so, right, we want to be clear here. We are not, we, we had language in the web debit rule, what I quoted before as the account validation rule, that stated that the commercially reasonable fraudulent transaction detection system in play for a web debit must include an account validation component. And so it's not quite the same language that we have used here, and we are not intending to say that one must validate the account on an account validation transaction. So there, there are two different requirements, um, one being specific to account validation, and it just so happens that this is a transaction type that can be used for account validation. And so sometimes people, you know, get a little bit confused there, um, but we are not saying, again, that, that you got to validate 
the account validation transaction, what we are talking about for commercially reasonable in this instance is at a minimum, those, um, those forward and return volumes and monitoring them, understanding any abnormal and acting on any abnormal activity. Um, and, you know, some other best practices that would go beyond that would include things like velocity checking. So make sure that, you know, the number of times that an account number is in your file, even perhaps if somebody's trying to, you know, hide it in a, in a particular way, that it makes sense. Um, or is there a possibility that, you know, somebody has taken advantage and, um, you know, they are trying to uh, use, you know, an account number too many times, right? It doesn't make sense that this account number would be used for this amount of, of my customers. So that's an example of a type of, of velocity monitoring, um, you know, that could be included in the commercially reasonable, but does not have to be an account, uh, excuse me, a transaction by transaction, um, you know, validation of the account information like is required uh, for the web debit rule. Well, Amy, I, I really want to thank you. This has been very informative, instructional, and, and incredibly thorough. I can imagine that some of our listeners uh, would like to get some additional information. So what resources are available for those who have any questions about the rules or how to help them comply with it? We've got some great stuff out on our website, nacha.org, um, in a couple of different places. So if you are looking, um, you know, for a little bit more detailed, a little bit more operational information, then we have the actual rule page. So I mentioned earlier that this rule is going to be moving from upcoming to implemented. So when you go out to the NACHA website and you go to ACH and, and you go to the rule page, you'll notice when you go to the upcoming rule, there are different tabs across the top. And so um, you can see there's implemented. And when you go to the account page, you will see um, information uh, on, a, there's a one pager at the top that um, gives additional information about the rule. There is also a chart at the top um, that's more for financial institutions and understanding um, the guidance around the return process of um, micro entries. It can also be helpful for originators of micro entries to understand what the message is that's being sent by the returns that they're getting, um, the micro entry returns that they're getting. There's also FAQs, rule details. It talks about you know the actual parts of the the rule languages that ha that has changed. Um, if you're looking for some, you know, some higher level information, we also have our um, rules uh, resource center for corporates or for end users, kind of not to speak if you're not a financial institution, you're not a corporate, but uh, you are a corporate. So, um, you know, it's a, a little bit of, you know, lump language there, but these that uh, page is really, really good for, you know, any type of organization um, that receives or processes payments and financial institutions also use it as well well. Um, they go out there to pull information, you know, sometimes for their clients or even for their own employees that just aren't as directly involved in, you know, the day-to-day -day ACH activities. There is a new recorded webinar that's out there um, where we actually cover um, several different changes uh, that are happening here in
in at the end of this year, but um, there's a good segment of that webinar that is dedicated to the microentry rule. Um, and we also have end user briefings out there, and these are one of our most popular resources. Um, they're just a front and a back that tells you in non Nacha language, um, exactly what you need to know about a, a, a rule that's coming up. And so I believe the second one that's listed there is is for micro entries. But beyond just you know the 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 Nacha resources out there, um, you know your financial institutions also I'm sure uh, are a great resource of information. In fact, you need to be talking to your financial institutions and financial institutions. You need to be talking to your clients, you know about you know uh, whatever is expected in terms of compliance with this rule. Uh, they can also help answer questions. And if you use a vendor um, for your services they can be a great source of information as well. And um, payments associations, if you're a payments association member, um, they're a great resource also. So lots of good stuff out there. And you know we're really excited now that uh, we are officially in the world of micro entries, capital M, capital E. Well, uh, Amy, thank you again. This has just been a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate all of the details that you provided for our listeners. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in again and looking forward to you joining us in future episodes of Notch's Payment Smartcast. So have a wonderful day.